If you would take out your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, it feels like we're at a something of a, a transitional point this week. The last couple of weeks, just theologically, we've been climbing over sort of the Himalayas of theology here in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, this great Christ hymn. It appears to be perhaps a hymn, perhaps a, a poem that was written extolling the, the virtues and the glory of Christ, both in his humiliation and in his exaltation, that he was in heaven equal with God and yet humbled himself, being born as a, as a man, taking the form of a servant and humbling himself in his obedience, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, the very lowest point. And that because of that, that therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. And, and as we've crossed this, this, these peaks of great theology, it, it feels now as we go into verse 12 and, and following what we read here almost sounds a little bit ordinary, doesn't it? Well, we haven't read it yet, but, but you'll hear it in a moment that, that these are verses in which Paul now switches to giving us very ground-level, man-on-the-street exhortation that are very practical, very down-to-earth about how we might obey, how we can work out our salvation, obeying the Lord, doing all things without complaining or grumbling or questioning. We move to this part here where it's, it's, it doesn't have the, the great vistas of all of theology encompassed, and yet as we read these side by side, what I want us to see is how deeply connected they are. That whether he's speaking of this great, these theological truths and these dogmatic truths that are, are wondrous, or whether he's simply giving us this very practical day-to-day -day life instruction about how to live in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord, these two things cannot be separated. They, they cannot be separated. In fact, we're going to see that in verse 12 because it starts with the word therefore. It connects them very clearly. But he wants us to have that vision of Christ still in our mind. He wants us to have everything of verses 5 through 11 right in the front of our mind as we go into these very practical exhortations. We must have the two connected. There is no practical exhortation from Paul that doesn't find its foundation and its grounding in the truth of Christ and who he is and what he has done for us. So let's go ahead and read these verses now. I want to read chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 of Philippians. Let me ask, if you're able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word today? <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord, Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning or complaining, some will say, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if, at, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. 
Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your word, perfect, inspired, inerrant, given that we might become wise unto salvation, that we might have everything that is necessary for life and for godliness. And so we ask that you will use your word as it is given to provide these things for us, to instruct us, to teach us, to lead us in the path of discipleship as we, day by day, take up our cross and follow Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. There's, in this passage, is perhaps one of the most challenging commands that we might find in the scripture, although, uh, again, it feels very practical, it's very down-to-earth, there's nothing uh, super memorable, perhaps, but what we see is maybe one of the most difficult commands that I find in the Bible, and that is verse 14, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Such a simple exhortation that comes from the Apostle Paul, and yet we all know how difficult that is on a day-to-day basis. We all know how many opportunities we have on any given day to grumble, to complain, to question, to argue. And Paul gives us a standard here of saying, do all things without that. Why? Well, that's what we want to see in this text. And I want to just do it in, in two points that go along with the two paragraphs, at least in the ESV, it's two paragraphs. First, to see how Paul calls us to the high calling of following Jesus. The high calling of following Jesus in verses 12 and 13. And then to see in verses 14 through 18 this one specific exhortation and how Paul grounds it and how he gives it to us. His specific exhortation to unity without grumbling. Unity without grumbling. But look at verse 12. As we mentioned, it begins with this one word, therefore, to show that there is a vital connection between these verses that have just gone before, 5 through 11, where he gives us this grand picture of Christ, his humility and his exhortation, and what comes next? What comes next? Because of that, he's going to therefore move into some very specific words of of teaching and instruction, of discipleship, to tell us what to do. And so there's a key point already to be seen in this therefore, to see that first he wants us to follow Jesus. So he has showed us Jesus in his humility and now teaching us we also should walk in that path. He also shows us not only that we're following Jesus, but because of what Jesus has done, that therefore we are empowered. Because Jesus, that is our Savior, as we said, it's our groom as a church, the body of Christ, our groom who is now exalted in the heavens, who has received all authority in heaven and on earth, who is the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess because of this great and glorious reality that he's just shown us. Therefore, let us walk in obedience to him. Let us walk in obedience to him. You see, if we're going to have any hope of of this exhortation to do all things without grumbling and complaining, we're going to have to see first, where do we get the power to obey a command such as that? Where are those resources going to come from? And we have to see first it comes from a vision of Jesus in his glory. His humiliation, his exaltation, that's what will motivate us to obedience. It's really very practical in this way to see this word therefore and this connection because we ask ourselves, what are we going to use to motivate ourselves when our heart feels weary? 
when the path of discipleship is difficult, when we do not feel like obeying, where do we go? What are our resources that we're going to draw on? Are we going to go back to to some of the difficult sayings, the, the threats and the commands to try to get our heart in gear? Or are we going to go back to this glorious picture of Christ, high and lifted up, and say, if, if he has humbled himself and been glorified and exalted by God, then my heart is drawn to one like that. My heart is drawn to follow. It also teaches us something. We could flip that and say that this teaches us that, that if our obedience should flow from worship, that teaches us the same truth, that our worship must lead to obedience. And I think... It, that Paul would tell us this, that if our worship does not lead to obedience, something is defective in there, something is broken, that if, if we can read verses 5 through 11 and, and just slow down and marvel over these verses and spend some time contemplating them and have the, the eyes of our heart raised to Christ and see him in his beauty and yet go out and not desire to obey, what is wrong with that picture? There, there's something that's missing in that. And so... The point, again, is that true worship of Christ must lead to true obedience. It ought to. That's the way that the world works. That's the way God has designed the human heart, that, that if we are truly worshiping Christ, if we see him as he is, then yes, we will want to obey. Our, our response should say, how should we then live? Tell us, what, what must we do now? And that's what Paul is doing. That's what Paul is doing. In fact, this is one of the things, and there are several, but this is one of the things that protects us as we read these verses, from falling into sort of a works righteousness mindset. Right? Because we're going to get to this phrase, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. And we're going to guard that carefully to make sure we understand what Paul is saying. But see, the, the pit we so easily fall into is that we fall into the trap of thinking that's telling us something about works righteousness. Ah, I have to work on my salvation. I have to do this. And with fear and with trembling, it's not easy. But the first thing we see is that Whatever he says in that, whatever that's going to come to mean, it is connected to the fact that Jesus has gone before. That he has done this great redemptive act, him humbling himself, being exalted, all of that is finished. So that text, that can't contradict what he has said first, because they're connected by this, therefore. One of these greatest pictures of Jesus and his work is now the heartbeat of what moves us to obey. And here's what he's going to say in verse 12. As you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. Work out your salvation. Now, this is one of the tricky passages, and we need to be clear about what it means. And we need to be clear. Let's, let's hear the words. It says, work out your salvation. It does not say work for your salvation, right? That would be a vastly different thing. That would be completely different. And we don't want to read it over this too quickly and, and risk coming away with the wrong impression because here is the truth. All of your joy as a believer in Christ hinges on that word. All of your joy, if, if we come away with some misunderstanding that what Paul is saying is that we must work for our salvation, that he is telling us that, that somehow in some cosmic sense that our salvation is not secure, or, or perhaps we don't, have it yet unless we are working hard enough, unless we are diligent enough, unless we are pursuing that goal of holiness and Christ-likeness with enough 
fervor. If he's saying that if you're not really up to standards, then maybe your salvation is insecure, then there's no joy in the Christian life in that, is there? Because now it's all about how hard do I have to work? Am I doing enough? Am I being good enough? Is my current life acceptable to Christ? There's no joy in that. If our salvation is up to us in any sense, that will rob us of all the joy. In fact, John MacArthur once said this, commenting on this idea of eternal security. He said, listen, if you could lose your salvation, you would. If anything about it was up to you, it would be completely insecure. But this is the good news of the gospel, is that your salvation hinges on what Jesus Christ did for you at the cross, and that is secure. He said, your sins are forgiven because of Christ's work on the cross. They are forgiven once for all. And so you are now welcomed by the Father. And so whatever we see in this passage, it does not say, if you're not working hard enough, that, that your salvation is in doubt. That it does not say that. Rather, this is what it says, work out your salvation. Work it out. In other words, you already have it. It has been given to you as a gift due to the incomparable work of Christ in his incarnation, death and resurrection and exaltation. And now, as those who have participated in that, saved by that, work out all the consequences of that in your own life. Begin to figure out what does it look like now for one who has partaken in this reality of Christ's exaltation, what does it look like for me to live a life of discipleship in this world? That's something that he's now exhorting us to work that out. Work that out in life. What does it look like to live here on earth and yet as a citizen of heaven? And to live in a way that is worthy of that citizenship. In fact, we would say this is the entire method of all of the New Testament. All of the Bible, in fact. That it begins, always begins, by giving us this great indicative, this reality. This is what God has done for you in Christ. This is who you are, sons of God, adopted into his family, justified. And then it says, now, because of that, because of your identity, go on and work that out in real life. What will that look like? Everyday life to live a life that is worthy of that calling. That's what it means when we say, the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. Not good advice is what you ought to be doing, how you ought to be living. It's good news. This is what God has done for you in Christ. And then tells us, work that out in daily life. We cannot reverse those components. It cannot leave one out. And he says, work out your salvation. So given that you have salvation, given that you do believe in Christ, now work it out. And how do you do so? with fear and with trembling. Those are interesting words. He adds a very, I would call, a deep layer of seriousness on top of his exhortation. To those to whom he has said to work it out, now, he says, do that with fear and trembling. I believe that's a, a phrase, those are words that tell us how seriously Paul takes this. I believe he's speaking to a church in Philippi and a culture in Philippi that, perhaps like our own, is prone to not take the pursuit of holiness very seriously. They are just lacking in that. And I think we have to be honest and say, we fall into that trap as well. 
Sometimes we get so caught up in the glory of the gospel and what has been done for us, and, and we preach this good news that it's all of Christ and not of our work, and we rejoice in that, and we live by that, which is good, and we should rejoice in that. But we can just fall right over the edge into saying, therefore, I don't have to do anything. Well, yes, for your salvation you don't have to do anything. But he says, work that out. Work out that salvation. Follow Christ. Take up your cross. Follow me. There is a call to live after Christ as he does. I don't believe in any way Paul is trying to scare us into obeying to say that you must have this deep-rooted sense of fear that if you don't work hard enough, it's not, you're not going to be saved. I don't believe that's what he's saying at all. Actually, what he's doing here is he's referencing, I believe, Exodus 15.16. Exodus 15.16. And there are other references that we'll come back to later. But if you just flip over one moment to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, this is part of the song now that Moses is singing to the Lord after all of Israel has been rescued from Egypt. We know that they have come out of Egypt at the day of the Passover when the angel of the Lord went through Egypt and he uh, killed all of the firstborn of Egypt in order to free Israel. They went out into the wilderness. Egypt was pursuing them and God made a way through the Red Sea. So they could go across on dry land and the water covered back up over the Egyptians. God saved his people and they sing this song. And in verse 16, as Moses is describing what it means for all the people of the nations around to behold this spectacle, he says, Terror and dread fell upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Here's what he's saying. He's saying all the nations of the world have seen God's salvation. What God has done on behalf of his people, for, for those Old Testament Israelites, that was the act of salvation, rescuing them from slavery, redeeming them from Egypt. And he says all the watching worlds were able to see that. They saw God's mighty acts of salvation. And because they saw it, terror and dread, they had this sense of awe at what God was able to do that the God of the Israelites was the one true God, and he saves his people. He did not let them die. He did not let them stay in slavery. And there was this sense of, of fear and of awe that came over them. And if even the unbelieving nations can behold the work of God in salvation and have this sense of, of fear and, and awe and trembling that comes on them, how much more with us? And indeed, here in Philippians 2, what has Paul done? He's just described for us the great act of salvation. Jesus Christ, God himself, humbling himself, coming to earth, dying the death of the cross, being vindicated and exalted back into heaven. He says, now here we see an even greater act of God's salvation, that the one true God of all the earth does not let his people perish, but he will do anything it takes, even coming to earth himself, die. He says, if you are wise, the watching peoples of the world will look on this and they will have a sense of awe at how great is our God. How merciful, how gracious, how long-suffering, how loving is our God that he saves his people. And he says, how much more then should we who are believers look on this act of salvation 
and, and recommit ourselves then to obey with a sense of awe, with a sense of fear and trembling. For we have just beheld the works of God. It's the fear and trembling that that is the proper response. To have our minds and our hearts so drawn in to God's great redemptive acts that we, have a, a, that we are moved to obey, we're moved to follow. And so here's the reality. If, if we now go into life and don't have this sense of seriousness, this sense of awe at the works of God, maybe what we've done is we've read over verses 5 through 11 too quickly. And we need to go back and we need to re-immerse ourselves in the work of God. We need to go back and we need to meditate some more. Who is Jesus Christ? What does he do for those who love him? How has he worked on our behalf at a time when we did not deserve it? And to immerse our hearts so that we now have this sense of awe to see these are the mighty acts of our God in salvation. And then to come again and say, okay, now let me follow, now let me obey. Let these words sink into our souls first. We are to obey, he says, not merely with fear and trembling, but, as he says, another great reality is that, why? Because it's God who's at work in you. It's God who is at work in you, both to will and to act, according to his good pleasure. So we've seen what he has done, and as we obey, we see now that he is still working in us. That it's him who's in us. There's, you know, it seems in every superhero movie, it seems like it doesn't matter which one, there's always some type scene near the beginning where this superhero has this moment of, of dawning realization of these powers that he didn't realize he had. And he's almost dumbfounded at first. He doesn't know what to do with it. That he, he suddenly has been granted by some source these amazing new abilities. And you know he doesn't know how to use them. He doesn't know what to do with them. And there's this process of learning. And, and I picture this something like that. That Paul is saying to the Philippian church, you ought to obey with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who is at work in you. He says there, there's a power here that you might not have known about at first that it's not just you and you alone following after the Lord, but that God, by the power of his Spirit, is at work in your heart. He is working both to will and to act according to his good purpose. He is at work transforming you into the image of Christ. He is at work helping you put to death the deeds of the body, helping you put on as God's chosen ones compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, helping you bear with one another. He says, these are things you do, not merely in your own strength, but you are empowered to do these in part because God's Spirit resides in you. He is at work. Don't, don't feel hopeless and helpless and tempted to despair and to give up that you'll never make it. Do you know that it is God who is at work in you? He is at work in you. And now he's going to give us one specific exhortation after sort of this general commendation to, to obey, work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in us, here's a specific example, one specific application. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. So simple, so practical, maybe one of the hardest commands in the Bible to follow, isn't it? Do all things without grumbling. That means not grumbling towards one another, but especially 
perhaps primarily without grumbling towards the Lord. To do all things without grumbling. Now, we don't necessarily see this in the English, but Paul is actually referencing again the story of the Exodus in Exodus 15, 16, and 17. There are several places, that even this word grumbling, it's a Greek word that is very rare in the New Testament, but it's very frequent in the book of Exodus. Uh, when he says that we might be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, that is a phrase taken from Moses' song in the wilderness. And as we saw, fear and trembling comes from Exodus. And so I want us to see something back in Exodus 15, if we can go back there for a moment. Because again, what we see is here, is, here are the Israelites having just experienced the greatest salvation possible in the Old Testament, that God has redeemed them out of slavery, delivered them from death, saved them, and now he's going to lead them to the promised land. We all read this, and we know Israel's in a good place right here. They're in a good place. God is doing wonderful things for them. And yet, and so the first 22 verses of chapter 15 in Exodus, it's this great song of praise. They're, they're just praise and worship time. They're on the banks of the Red Sea. Everything is going well. They're happy in the Lord. And yet, in verse 22, as they set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water because it was bitter, and therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And note in verse 27, Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees. Here they are in the midst of this glorious situation, having just beheld the power and the glory of God working completely on their behalf because he loves them, because he's chosen them, because they belong to him. And yet, just three days later, there they are grumbling again. And yet... Here's one of the great evidences to me that, that God is more holy than I am. God is gracious to them again. I, you know, I might have been tempted not to be quite so merciful and gracious to this people that I've done so much good for, and then they are tempted to complain and to whine. But God listens, and he hears their complaints. And he provides for Moses this log that he throws in the water, and it becomes sweet. And then he brings them to paradise with 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there. God hears their grumbling and he's merciful and he's gracious. You think, wow, that, that must have so transformed the hearts of the people to bring them after them. And yet, we know that they, like ourselves, are all too human. Again, in chapter 16, they set off in uh, verse 2, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. And they said, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill us. It's, it's so easy for us, isn't it, to read this and to see how ridiculous these people are being. To see how much God has provided for them. And yet they're so prone to grumble. And, and it's easy to, to sit on our high thrones of judgment and to laugh at them. And yet, aren't we also able to realize how similar we are? aren't we also able to see that that's just a picture of us? How great is the salvation that the Lord has worked on our behalf? That Jesus Christ, in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself 
on our behalf, became obedient to death, even death on the cross on your behalf, in order that you might be saved from death, be redeemed from your slavery to sin. And you would think how natural it must be then for us to follow him with joy, and yet we know the reality, don't we? We know all too well how easy it is for us to grumble. The first sign of difficulty, the first sign of hardship, to complain against the Lord, to forget so quickly the great salvation the Lord has worked for us completely of his grace. How easy it is for us to walk away and how is it that our hearts have not been softened more than they have been, not been changed more than they have been. We're so ready so soon to grumble against the Lord. And so Paul is saying to us here, the power for us to not grumble and complain comes from the goodness of Christ. It comes from the reality of what he has done for us. And he's going to give that to us again in verse 16. Again in verse 16 of chapter 2, he says, here again is the power of how to do it. He says, holding fast to the word of life. How is it that we will shine as lights in the universe in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation only by this, only as you are holding fast, fast to the word of life? That is the means that God gives us. It's the, the word of life. It's the gospel. And, and, and I believe when he says the word of life that it's not just the gospel sort of very narrowly considered that Jesus' death on the cross, but it's more broadly considered. It's the fact that God in his mercy and in his grace from all eternity has planned this, has been sovereignly orchestrating all things according to the purpose of his will in order to glorify Christ and to raise us with him. It's that he is our good and loving Heavenly Father who knows the very number of the hairs on your head. It's that he is the one without whose knowledge a single bird can fall from the sky. It's this good news that God's story is so much bigger and so much grander. And by mercy, he brings our story into his. And he says, all things work out for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Where he can say, he who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That's the power by which we can begin to obey, verse 14. Because, let's be honest, every day we're presented with plenty of legitimate opportunities for grumbling. Things do not go our way. In this world in which we live, we're surrounded by sin. We are sinned against. We sin against others. Most of us have sinners for roommates. Most of our roommates have sinners for roommates. It, there are going to be opportunities to grumble, to complain, to whine. And yet, he says this, hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the glorious reality that God has ordained all things to work according to the purpose of his will. And part of the purpose of his will is your salvation, your sanctification, your growth in Christ. That his will for you is not that life be easy, but that you grow in your likeness to Christ. I was reading again this week an interview with J.I. Packer, and I, I referenced this last week, that he's one of my theological heroes. 
who over Christmas was struck with macular degeneration in, in his second eye. So he is no longer able to read or write, which has been the heartbeat of his ministry for 50-odd years now, producing works that have blessed the entire English-speaking church. And now he can't do it anymore. He's 89 years old. And in this interview, <clears throat> here's what, what Packer said with reference to this. He said, God knows what he's doing. Packer is confident that, quote, this comes as a clear indication from headquarters, and I take it from him. God knows what he's up to, and I've had enough experiences of his goodness in all sorts of ways not to have any doubt about the present circumstances. Something good, something for his glory, is going to come of it. That's, I believe, how you avoid grumbling and complaining in the midst of difficult situations. He says he's lost his eyesight. His whole livelihood has depended on reading, writing. He loses his eyesight and he says, God knows what he's doing. This comes as a clear indication from headquarters and I take it from him. I love that line that in the face of suffering, he says, this comes as a clear indication from headquarters. His first thought is to say, this is the Lord's doing. And God is my loving heavenly father, knows the hairs on my head, He cares for me. And therefore, there's no reason to grumble in this. If we can see all the circumstances of our lives as coming from the hand of a loving Heavenly Father, what causes there to grumble or complain? He says that he's had enough experience of his goodness. He's had enough experience of the one who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? I believe that getting to that point it doesn't happen overnight. Packer is 89 years old and for his whole life has been walking with God, studying his word. He, what has he been doing? He's been holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to it, studying it, immersing himself in it. Not, I'm not saying that J.I. Packer is perfect in all things, but in this I believe he models for us a life of holy contentment, a life in which he is able to not grumble or complain in the midst of difficult circumstances because what I see him saying is the same thing Paul says in verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, most commentators say he's looking towards his death. He's in prison, and he knows it might not end well. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Even if it doesn't end well, he says, I'm glad. I rejoice. This comes as a clear indication from headquarters. God knows what he's doing. And therefore, holding fast to that, holding fast to that, we follow him, not grumbling, not complaining, but looking to Christ. Immersing our hearts in the glory of what God has done, saving us, bringing us to himself, calling us to follow him, in order that we might indeed work out our salvation without grumbling. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, we, we see in this text and we see in your word the great calling that is before us and yet knowing our hearts and how much we struggle to be faithful, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would in fact give us more of your word, give us more clarity, give us more love for it, more depth of it in our hearts. Give us more of your spirit to guide us, to work in us, to draw us to Christ. Lord, we ask that you will do this not for 
us, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory in all things, including the, the growth of your church. For it's in his name that we pray.